All right, Salt City, good to be with you guys. Um, my name's Jordan Adams. I'm the, the college pastor here, and we're going we're gonna to get right into this thing. Uh, we're, in, we're in a familiar, familiar parable um, that a lot of you guys have heard before. And the more I read Mark, the more I am seeing that Jesus just has blatant disregard for social norms. Like, this dude is saying some hard stuff, and so we're going to talk about hard stuff, because he does. But it's, it's really good, and so I'm, I'm excited for it. So this morning we're in Mark 4. Um, it's, it's the parable of the sower and the seeds. And, and a lot of you guys are familiar with that, but the, the, the basic idea of the parable is that there's a, a farmer, and he's got a bag of seeds, right? And what he's doing is, is he's taking his seeds, and he's throwing them out onto the, onto the ground. And, and he's kind of indiscriminate on where the seeds are landing, and so they're landing on different types of soil. And so Jesus is telling this story, and the, the, the first seed lands on the path, and there's a bird that, that immediately comes and kind of takes it away. The second seed lands on rocky ground, and it doesn't have any roots, and so the plant dies. The third seed lands in some thorns, some weeds, and the weeds kind of raise up around it and they choke out the plant. And then the fourth type of soil is the good soil. And when the seed lands on the good soil, it goes down deep into the soil and it produces fruit. And so he tells this illustration to this, this crowd full of people and they don't have a clue what he's talking about. But there's this small group of people that, that are intrigued, they're, they're enticed by this parable and they come up to him and they ask him to kind of translate it for them. And this is what he says. So Mark 4, 14 through 20. This is kind of the, the translation of what he means by this story. Mark 4, 14 through 20. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground. The one who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So they, they start to suffer, and they fall away from Jesus. Verse 18, And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those that hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and they choke the word and it proves unfruitful. They get distracted by other things in life and so they don't grow. And then verse 20, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it. They bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Okay, so this, this parable is about the declaration of the kingdom of God and how people respond to it. And how they respond to it is that the majority of them don't really care about what Jesus has to say. One out of the four soils that represents people's hearts, there, there's only one out of the four that actually respond to Jesus positively. The, the rest of them walk away or deny him. And the surreal part about teaching on this parable this morning is it's literally describing what's happening right now. Okay, so, so this morning and every Sunday morning, what we do is we get together and we proclaim the kingdom of God, the words of Jesus. 
And we all kind of externally look the same. We all kind of, or most of us claim to be Christians and we kind of look similar, but internally there's different things going on in your hearts as the word kind of comes over you. And parables function kind of like a filter to sort out the people who are going to believe and the people who aren't. And in a room this size, what we can be confident in is that there's representations of every type of soil here. So there's some of you that are going to hear the word this morning. You're going to respond to it in faith. And guess what Jesus is going to do? He's going to give you the secret of his kingdom. The secret that can transform your life. But there's also some of you in this room that look like Christians, proclaim Christ, maybe even think that you know him. But what's going to happen in your heart is it's going to be hard towards the word of God. And you're going to go into your life and you're either going to be distracted by other things that you want to pursue or eventually you're going to encounter some hard stuff because you're a Christian and you're going to walk away. And so if you respond, so, so parables both are giving information about the kingdom of God and who Jesus is, but they're also diagnosing our hearts. And if you respond in faith, Jesus reveals to you the secret of his kingdom. He lets you in. He brings you closer but if you respond with a hard heart, the parable is a word of warning to you that you need to hear and listen to, and hopefully it'll soften your heart. So this is, this is where I want to go this morning. I want to ask, ask two big questions. And the first one's pretty tough, because if you're like me, you have this list of people in your mind as I ask this question, why do people walk away from Jesus? Because here's, the, here's just the reality of life. The longer that you follow Jesus, the more people you're going to see walk away from him. So I want to ask the question, why do people walk away? But then the second question I want to ask is, what is the kingdom like and how does it change what you love? Kind of a two for one on that second question. What's the kingdom like and how does it change what you love? And so, so I should acknowledge before we get into this, a lot of my thinking on this has been formed by this guy named Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York City, and I'd, I'd recommend him to you. He's, got a, he's a, got a book called Prodigal Gods, Counterfeit Gods. Both of them are really good, and I want to just kind of give him credit for a lot of this stuff is, is his, and I'm just kind of stealing it, but I gave him credit for it, so it's fine, right? Um, okay, so first question, why do people walk away from Jesus? So, so this is what I, I think we tend to think, that that if people could just have the right information about who God is, then they're going to be able to know him, right? That if, if people can just sort of intellectually assent to characteristics about who God is, then that's enough to know God and to follow him. But Jesus is actually saying the opposite. If you look in this parable, every soil gets the same baseline information. It gets the seed, which represents the word of God. So the gospel is preached in the same way to all of the soils, but they respond differently. Why? Verse 12, they may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand. So in other words, you can physically encounter knowledge about who God is, without it landing in your heart. You can know information about him without actually understanding him, without actually knowing him. And, and so this is what I want you to see, that the, the primary problem with people that reject Jesus was not in their heads, but in their hearts. Information is not enough 
for the life transformation of the kingdom. Because the kingdom is not just about changing what you know, it's about changing what you love. It's about changing what you love. So I'm, a, I'm an Iowa State fan, okay? Yeah, it was a good day yesterday. Um, now, is this poor contextualization to you, my Minneapolis audience? Yes, but I don't have that many stories about Minnesota athletics. So if you buy me tickets, I'll start telling stories about Minnesota athletics, all right? Fair deal. But I'm, I'm excited. Like, I'm excited to, to see the Gophers play some basketball. We're going to do this thing, but right now all my illustrations are Iowa State, so we're rolling with it, all right? We good? Okay, so I'm an Iowa State fan, particularly basketball, and my favorite player in history is George Niang. And George Yang was this four-year dude at Iowa State. He was an All-American, and, and we just loved him. And one, I mean, I know that I married the right person for many reasons, but one of the primary reasons is on senior night, Jessamy cried. And I just was like, yep, yep, I'm missing George with you, Jessamy. And uh, so I had this opportunity. We're switching sports. I had this opportunity in football to have an on-the-field pass. So you just put this magical lanyard over your neck and then you just walk onto the field. And there's these security people that are down there and they're like calling you sir and mister and they give you food and it's amazing. And so I'm down like on the field standing next to these players like freaking out having this amazing experience that I don't think can get any better and then I hear this voice behind me. And I turn around and George Niang is standing next to me and I'm immediately going fangirl on this situation. I'm like freaking out. But... I run into some tension because here's the deal. If you're in high school or in college, like it's totally fine to be pumped about a, a college athlete. But if you're like four years older than the dude, it's like starting to get a little, a little creepy, a little weird. And so I'm like freaking out inside, but I'm also like, oh, don't be, don't be weird. Don't be that guy. And so I'm trying to decide. It's like he gets this all the time. I don't know if I should say anything. And so this is my solution. I'm not going to say anything to George, but I am going to take an awkward selfie of him over my shoulder and pretend like I'm texting so I, I, I pull up my phone, like I'm just texting, nothing's happening, George, and I go to take my selfie with him, and I hit the button, and that horrible thing happens where it says, you have no storage left. It's like those commercials, have you seen that, where they're in like the worst situation possible, and they don't have any storage, okay, that, I lived that, that was my life, so now I'm freaking out, because it's like, what if he leaves, what if I can't get a photo, so I'm deleting photos, and I'm going through this whole thing, and I delete all my old photos, to where the only photos that I have left on my phone are of a trip that I took to Greece and Turkey to see ancient biblical sites. And now I have a dilemma. Okay, is it Ephesus or is it George? And I'm thinking, and I know what I should do, but it's George Niang. See you later, Ephesus. And I just start deleting photos of ancient Ephesus on my phone. I'm not proud of it, but it happened. And then I sneak this like creepy photo of George Niang over my shoulder. Okay, so here's what happened. I knew what I should have done. Okay, what I should, the logical thing to do in this situation is to keep the photos of ancient Ephesus. They're a little bit more important. Oh, my beard. Is that what's happening? Oh, beard life, guys. We good? Yeah, we're good. Okay, so what I should do is keep the photos of Ephesus. What I did is took a creepy photo of George Niang. Why? Because in that moment, I loved George more than the Apostle Paul. I just, I just did. Like, what I love, like, came out of me. All right, so here's my point. In life, you're going to encounter circumstances where you're going to have a decision about how you're going to live, and what you're going to live for. And the temptation is to think that if you just know the right way to live, then you'll live that way. But what's actually true is that you are inevitably 
going to live for what you love. You're inevitably going to pursue what you love. So why do people walk away from Jesus? Because they love something more than him. It's that simple. They love something more than him. And so the question of the kingdom is not what do you know, but what do you love? So I want to take a minute to unpack some false loves that will tempt people to walk away from him. The first false love is comfort. First false love is comfort. All right, verse 16. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Okay, so these people hear about the kingdom of God. They hear the gospel in Christianity and they respond positively. Okay, they respond with joy. They're, they're giddy. They're hyped up. They're showing up to church. They're, they're in a connection group. They're starting to read their Bible. They look externally exactly like a Christian. And they're starting to fit in. And they last for a while, but as soon as they begin to suffer, they walk away. Why? Because they'd rather be comfortable than know Jesus. So yeah, suffering is like fire. Okay, so, so you put something into the fire, one of two things is going to happen. Either it's going to be completely burned up or it's going to purify it. Right? So you put, you put hay in a fire, it's going to get burned up. You put gold in a fire, it's going to be purified. And that's what happens when you suffer, is your faith is going to be tested. And it's either going to be burned up and exposed for what it was, not the real thing, or it's going to be purified and come out more pure and stronger. So here's what this looked like in my life. So I, I grew up like doing the good Christian kid thing and I went to church and come, kind of my understanding of Christianity was like be a pretty good person and I thought I wasn't doing too bad at that. Like my parents loved me, my teachers loved me, like I was kind of that guy and I like was just kind of, I had some issues but kind of cruising through life and cruising through Christianity but then in junior high my dad got sick. Um, he, had, he had cancer and so my family started to suffer. And this is what happened in me, is my, my faith was proved faulty. So as things got hard, I started to walk away. I, I considered atheism, I considered other religions, I got mad at God, I didn't want anything to do with him, and I started to walk away from him. But here's what happened to my dad. His faith was purified. Dude's going through some hard stuff, but he, he just has this, this hope this faith that I couldn't deny. Here's what happens. Suffering exposes you for who you really are. And here's what I want you to know is that emotion is not the mark of a Christian. Maturity is, or excuse me, endurance is. Emotion is not the mark of a Christian. Endurance is making it through. College students, a lot of you are excited about your faith right now. You're having a good Christian experience, and that's good. Like, that genuinely is awesome that you're responding to the gospel, but I want you to know that it doesn't matter if you have a great experience now if you're not following Jesus for the rest of your life. I don't care if you have a good four-year experience. I want you to lean in into the tape at, at the end of your life following Jesus when you're 90. 
I want you to endure and not just look back at kind of the good old days when you used to follow Jesus. And, and that's why we harp so much on deep investment in the local church. Because if you get involved in this thing, and, and that might feel like self-promoting or whatever, but if you get involved in this thing, a couple things are going to happen. You're going to get around a community that's going to carry you when you want to walk away, and they're going to push you back towards Jesus. And the second thing that's going to happen is you're going to see the life of people that have endured. There's people in this church that you've followed Jesus for tw maybe 20, 30 years, and you've walked through brutal stuff, and you've kept the faith. And I just want to say, like, thank you. Like, like we, the, the, the younger generation needs you more than you realize. And every day that you get out of bed and you choose to follow Jesus is another day that you're paving the way for us to do the same. Keep going. Keep enduring. Thanks for setting the pace for us. Following Jesus isn't comfortable, but it's worth it. Following Jesus isn't comfortable, but it's worth it. Okay, so the first false love is the love of comfort. The second false love is the love of money. The love of money. Verse 18. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and they choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. So when you're in ministry, you see some pretty messed up stuff and you, you hear a lot of sin confessed. But here's what's true, is I can count on one hand the number of times that someone has confessed greed to me. I can count on the number, like on one hand, the number of times that I've confessed greed. I'm guilty of that too. Why? Well, I think partially because it's kind of taboo, like nobody wants to be the greedy Christian. But I think it's also because greed is kind of hard to see. It's kind of hard to know when it's, when it's in your life. So I have, I have family in California, and so we'd take some trips out there growing up, and I have this distinct memory of driving on, or me, I wasn't driving, I was like 12, but my parents were driving on freeways in LA, which is like six lanes of traffic, and everyone's going 20 miles an hour over the speed limit, and everyone's just mad at each other. They're honking each other, they're rolling down the windows and yelling, like it's, it's nuts, it was the worst. And there was this one day that I, that I remember, my dad's cruising in the carpool lane, which is on the left side, and there's like these, these thick yellow lines that mean, hey, you can't come out of this carpool lane right here. So he's cruising in the carpool lane, and then my mom goes, Doug, isn't that your exit? To which he goes, yep, hits the flashers and cranks the wheel to the right and proceeds to cross six lanes of traffic. And, and, and I remember my mom just screaming and me kind of thinking like calmly, like, so this is how I die. And so we cut off six lanes of traffic, we get off on the exit, and immediately as we get to the exit, lights. Because in one of the six lanes of traffic was a police officer who we just cut off. Cut off. And he walks up to the window, and dude is understandably not super happy. And he's asking my dad what in the world he's doing, and my dad plays the dumb Iowan card. He's like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, sir, like this is my first time driving out here, I'm from Iowa. To which the cop goes, do they not have yellow lines in Iowa? which I just started hysterically laughing, which didn't help the situation. But here's the thing, like he knew what he was doing. It's not that he was ignorant of it, he knew exactly what he was doing. And, and guys, sometimes that's what sin's like, you know exactly what you're doing. Like, like you, don't, you don't steal something and not know that you're stealing. You don't commit adultery and not know that you're committing adultery. 
And those are dangerous because you're in willful rebellion against God, but at least you can see some of that or people can point that out in your life. But there's some sins where the yellow lines are a little blurred and it's not as immediately obvious that you're breaking the law of God and therefore the heart of God. And I think greed is one of those because we tend to be blinded by comparison. We look at people that are like us and we don't think that we're that bad. But here's what Jesus says, is that money will kill your heart for him. Money will kill you spiritually. And here's what money does, is it makes a lot of promises. It promises status and security. And if you start to believe those promises, money will go from being a good thing that you enjoy to an ultimate thing that you love instead of Jesus. Money's going to promise you status that that you need that new car, you need that new house, you need that, that higher paying job. And, and maybe some of that is that you actually just want those things, but I think there's an element of that that you want those things because you want other people to see that you have those things. Like why are you so worried about the car that you drive? Like you're sitting in it, you can't even see what it looks like, but everybody else can. And so that's why you're worried about it. It offers you status, but pretty quick, you'll start to connect your personal worth with your financial worth. You'll place your significance as a human being in how many little green pieces of paper you can collect. And money will own you. All right, now you savers out there, you financial conservatives that are pointing your fingers at your spouse, you don't get off the hook. All right, you're in on this too. It just looks a little bit different. Maybe they're looking for status. Maybe you're looking for security. This was was me. So I went on a Dave Ramsey kick. You guys know who Dave Ramsey is? He's a financial advisor that has like this cult following. (gasps) Don't talk about Dave that way. Exactly. Um, and, And he's got some good stuff, but like people just get a little bit weird about it, including myself. So I went on this Dave Ramsey kick. We got all our money in this, these envelopes, and I'm freaking out about every penny that we have, and where is it, and track everything. And I was rocking this 1999 tan Ford Taurus. And, and that thing would rev up like it was in neutral every time I hit the gas, and then somehow the transmission would just drop, and it would just peel out, and it just did that like every time. I was peeling out in a Ford Taurus. Okay, so I wasn't doing this for status. I wasn't trying to look cool, but what was I doing it for? Security. I thought if I never spent anything that I had, then my, my, my future was secure. And I kind of thought that I was better than other people because I wasn't spending all my money. And luckily a friend pointed that out to me. He's like, dude, you know you're not more righteous because you have junky stuff, right? And, and it's true. Here's what was going on in my heart. Money was my security. It was my hope for a better future. It was my protection. It was my savior. In other words, it was my God. And either money will be ultimate to you or Jesus will be, but it can't be both. So why do people walk away from Jesus or never come to him at all? Because they love and trust something other than him. And to clarify, what I'm not saying is that people are like real Christians and then they get tempted by sin and they walk away. The parable is actually saying the opposite. It's saying that, that suffering or other things expose what was already true in their hearts. They never actually knew him. Their faith was never actually genuine. 
But what about people who do have genuine faith, who do love the kingdom? Well, that's the good soil. Verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. When you learn to love the kingdom, the seed goes down deep in your heart. You don't just know it, but you understand it, you love it, and it starts to produce fruit, change in your life. So now we're at the second question. What's the kingdom like, and how can it change what you love? What's the kingdom like, and how can it change what you love? Well, the kingdom of God is like a seed in a couple ways. The first one is it's both strong and weak. The kingdom of God is like a seed, and it's both strong and weak. And second, the kingdom of God is like a seed in that it has the power of life in it. Okay, so the kingdom of God is both strong and weak. Think about an acorn. Okay, so you have this seed-like thing. I don't know if it's technically considered a seed, but you have an acorn, and if you, if you drop it on the ground and you step on it, you've smashed the life out of it, right? It's not going to do anything at that point. It's weak. But that exact same thing in the right context and circumstances can produce a full-grown tree, and that full-grown tree can reproduce, and it can cover the world in forest, like that same little thing can literally change the world. It's both strong and weak. And that's what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom is weak in the sense that it's rejected by the majority of people. And the world writes it off as stupid. And honestly, some of you in this room are kind of unimpressed by it. You just do this Christian thing because it's what you've always done. But it's not impressive to you. That same weak-looking kingdom is the same kingdom that's turned the world upside down. That's transferred the, transformed the world. It's spread to every nook and cranny of the globe. It's covered the world in grace. It's been changing people for thousands of years. That's what the kingdom of God is like. And if you know what the kingdom of God is like, then you know what Jesus is like because he's the king of that kingdom and he's strong and weak in similar ways. He came in strength to judge and defeat sin and Satan. But it wasn't the way that people expected him to. It wasn't as this kind of conquering, ruling king that they were expecting. He didn't bring the sword. Because if he did, we all would have died. Instead, he packaged his strength in weakness. He became a crying baby. God, like, couldn't talk or walk for a while. Okay, it's strong and weak. And you know what has to happen to seeds for them to grow? John 12 talks about this. The seed has to be placed into the ground and it has to die. Jesus was buried underground. And three days later, life sprouted out of that death. And that life has exploded into the world and it's fundamentally changed this world. And if you see the kingdom for what it is, it's going to do the same thing to you. Life is going to explode into your heart and it's going to change everything about who you are. That's the second way the kingdom is like the seed and that it has the power of life in it to change everything about who you are. Okay, so you, you plant seeds because they can produce life, which is kind of amazing, right? I've thought more about 
seeds in the last week than I have the rest of my life combined. They're these little specks that you put in the ground and you wait, and then there's this plant. Like, what? It just everything fundamentally changes as it grows. It's, it's crazy. Okay, so I love golf. I need some new golf clubs. Imagine if my strategy was to plant my driver in the ground. No, wait for it to grow a tree to give me some more golf clubs. It's not going to work. Why? Because there's not the power of life in metal. You plant it, and the only thing that happens is it decays. Some of you are, cha- are attempting to change without the power of life in you. You're looking for self-help, self-improvement. I noticed on my shirt this morning, there's these little tags like down here that say, believe in yourself. And then there's another one that says, you've got this. My shirt just decided to give me a pep talk. I don't understand. Like I discovered these this morning. Self-help is literally everywhere, including my shirt, apparently. What is that going to do for my life? Am I going to look at this? You got this. All right, my life is different. Everything's good. No, this isn't going to work. It's ridiculous. And as Christians, sometimes we do the same type of stuff. Like, We're trying to change by our own willpower, our own effort. If I can just work hard enough, if I can just gain enough theology, if I can just have the right strategy for holiness, then I'm going to change. And I'm telling you, that's as ridiculous as planting metal in the ground and trying to watch it grow. There's no power behind it. It can't accomplish growth. But when you encounter the power of the life of God in you, it's an entirely new order of life that you receive. When his life is released into your life, your thoughts, your, emo- your emotions, your motivations, your habits, your desires, they're transformed and they're conformed to his. And maybe most importantly, what you love changes. He begins to be your ultimate desire and real change happens because you have real love for him. And you will grow relentlessly every time Christians grow. And you might not be able to perceive that, but you will grow because that's what happens when the life of God enters your life. Has that happened to you? Like, is Christianity just this thing, this knowledge, this series of events that you do, or has the life of God exploded into your life and changed everything about who you are and everything about what you love? Has Christianity become real deep in your soul? And if that's happened, you won't just have an emotional response to Jesus, you'll endure. James 1 is kind of my life first. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. What? Like, who says that? Who says consider it joy when stuff in your life is terrible? Is terrible? Well, a Christian does. Here's what this looked like for me. I told you about my dad getting sick earlier. So I got to this place where I wanted to walk away, but I couldn't deny the hope that he had. And here's what ended up happening is he, he actually passed away my junior year in high school. And that's the night that Jesus saved me. He, he came and he got me. Because for the first time in my life, I was broken. And instead of trying to be impressive for him or to come to him to give me stuff or to change me or to make me better, I just wanted him because he was all that I had. I just wanted him. 
And what I found in that moment, and as I look back on it, is the worst moment of my life and the best moment of my life all at the same time. Because without that moment, I never would have known Jesus and I would have never tasted joy. And joy is not the same thing as happiness. I wasn't happy, but I was hopeful because I had him. If comfort or health or happiness is your hope, if that's your joy, suffering can take it away from you in a moment and you'll have nothing left. But it can't take away him. If he's your hope, if he's your love, because he's the God that suffered for you and nothing can break that love, that bond that he has with you. So Christian, endure. Keep going, don't give up. And if the life of God has been planted in your soul, you don't have to chase money either. Because Jesus was the most wealthy man that ever lived. He had spiritual riches that we can't even imagine. He had everything that God had, which is everything, by the way. He had everything that God had. He had spiritual riches that we can't imagine. And he left them. Because if he would have just held on to his wealth, then we would have died poor. And so what did he do? He gave up his heavenly wealth to die poor so that we could become rich. The richest person in, in Minnesota is the CEO of Cargill. He's worth a cool $5.6 billion. Imagine if he came out of his corner office downtown. I don't really know if it's downtown, but it is in my illustration. He comes out of his corner office downtown, and he walks down onto the street, and he sees a homeless man. And imagine if he takes off his suit, and he trades clothes with a homeless dude, and then he sits down, on the side of the road, and he hands the guy his keys to his office and to his mansion and says, have, have fun. That's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus gave up his treasure because you were more valuable to him. And, and, and when you watch him do that, he becomes your ultimate treasure. Like, like when you actually experience the power of the kingdom, it changes your life because it changes what you love. Has it happened to you? Let me pray. Jesus, thanks for changing me and teaching me to love you. I never would have done that on my own, but you came and you impacted me with your life and I'm grateful, and I'm asking you to impact our church with your life. Jesus, would we not be a church that is kind of showing up but doesn't know what it's like to actually know you, to actually love you? Would we be a church that's deeply impacted by your kingdom, by your love for us? And would it change the way that we live? Would we actually be holy people because we've met you? And would we love you more than anything else in the world? We need your help. We can't do that on our own. And so would you help us? We love you, Jesus. Amen.